From Stapleton to Stytown, from Soundview to Sunnyside, and right here on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, it's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs. That means it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. From CityLimits.org, I'm Jarrett Murphy. From Gotham Gazette, this is Ben Max. Jarrett, good to see you after a couple weeks of uh, missing each other and holding down the fort individually. Reunited, and it feels so good. Yes, yes. Did you have a good uh, time off? I did. It was wonderful. He was well, I hope. Yeah, same, same. Absolutely. So we are talking basically two weeks before primary day. Everyone out there, if you are basically registered in the Democratic Party, that's where the real primaries are, though the Reform Party is having this sort of open uh, AG primary for attorney general. But the Democratic primary party is really where the primaries are at. Thursday, September 13th, two weeks from tomorrow, get ready to vote. And we are on this side of the Labor Day date, which traditionally opens the very last stage of campaigning. But this week is very busy because we have debates coming out of our ears. We had the <laughs> attorney general debate, second one last night. Um, you moderated a debate among the lieutenant governor candidates on the Democratic side this morning, which will air later. And as we speak, the Democratic candidates for governor, Cynthia Nixon and Governor Andrew Cuomo, are taping a debate to air later tonight. So if you like debates, yes. this is the week for you. It's a great week. Uh, I moderated an attorney general Democratic primary debate last week. Uh, you can find that on YouTube at the Manhattan Neighborhood Network site. This morning, I moderated the lieutenant governor debate. That'll be posted tomorrow. So there's lots out there tonight. This gubernatorial debate will be on CBS2 and streaming between Governor Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. And really, I mean, that's going to be fascinating to watch. Governor Cuomo, four years ago, did not agree to debate his primary challenger, Zephyr Teachout, who's now running for attorney general. And this year, he has agreed to debate Cynthia Nixon. I'm not really sure what changed the calculus there, but it makes for really interesting politics, really interesting drama, and a chance for many voters who are not like ourselves or maybe the dedicated listeners to this program and our podcast to get a sense of of the candidates. That's right. Apparently, this is the first time he has debated one-on-one with a primary opponent since 2002, his uh, ultimately aborted race for governor in 2006. He had a crowded field. Other times he's been on the stage with others or, as you said, not debated. So that is a fascinating matchup. Um, uh, Without spoiling anything, you moderated this debate among, which which is also a very interesting race, this race for the number two slot. Not normally a contested thing, but this year because Jumani Williams is challenging Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, it's become a very interesting contest, very contentious. Uh, Can you tell us anything about what came out of this morning? Absolutely. So there's already articles posting, you know, it was open to reporters to tweet about, write about, um, but it won't officially air until tomorrow and be up online. But it's, they have very, very different views on what the position of lieutenant governor should look like. Kathy Hochul expressed her view, which is more in line with what the state constitution says, that it's a partner with the governor, uh, takes direction from the governor, presides over the state senate, which can often just be a ceremonial duty, although could have some power if there's a deadlock. But um, Jamani Williams wants to reinvent the position. He says it should be more like the New York City public advocate calling out the governor, being a check. That's not exactly really how it's designed. And a telling factor in that, which I pressed him on at the debate, is the fact that while the parties nominate their lieutenant governor and governor candidates separately in the primaries, they run as a ticket in the general election. So these are not really separately elected uh, officials. So they got into a bunch of topics. They, you know, had some criticism for each other. We covered a lot in just over 30 minutes. So, uh, you know, I definitely 
urge people to check that That's out. That's a really interesting storyline just because the idea of a check on the governor was obviously a major theme in last night's attorney general debate and to what extent that office is that and to what extent each of the four Democratic candidates are capable of, of being that, given that the leading candidate in terms of endorsements, uh, Letitia James, is allied with the governor and has received his endorsement and his help fundraising. I, that was a fascinating debate. I think it was exactly what one wants out of a debate. If folks haven't seen it, they should go take a look at it. Really, you got a sense of the difference in their qualifications, which are all very impressive Slightly different emphasis in terms of how they direct the authorities of the office, but a really clear sense of difference in temperament in how they approach um, discussing each other, discussing their qualifications, their attitude towards the act of governing. A very important consideration when you're talking about an office that does have the power to investigate, subpoena, and even prosecute. That's that's a weighty set of authorities, and temperament and personality play a role in how those are exercised. Certainly, and as you said, these are four pretty impressive, strong candidates. Uh, You know, Democrats here have a good field to choose from. We don't always have that in elections. You know, sometimes we have an incumbent with a pretty impressive or long resume and, you know, some challengers who are just sort of scraping by to be on the ballot or something along those lines, or an incumbent who hasn't really done very much and is skating to reelection more often than not. But these four Democrats running for attorney general, it's it's a strong field. Now, and when we get to the general election, you know, there's going to be a sharp contrast with other candidates running, especially Republican Keith Wolford. But, um, you know, it's it, as you said, they have different backing, you know, different resumes. They have different backgrounds. They, they have different approaches to the things they think are the most important aspects of the office, although they all agree fighting Donald Trump is, you know, at the top of the list. Um, so it's a fascinating field. The debate was very interesting, and uh, Democratic voters have a tough choice there. Among the choices some voters have are the contested state Senate primaries. We've been focusing on them. Today we're looking at a race in Queens featuring incumbent Senator Jose Peralta and challenger Jessica Ramos. They are both going to join us today uh, in reverse order of what I just said. And first, we'll welcome to WBAI, uh, Ms. Ramos. Hello. Welcome to WBAI. Hi. How are you? How's everybody doing? Doing well, thanks. How are you today? I'm doing all right. You know, we're getting ready. Uh, There's actually a debate tonight being held uh, right here in the district in Corona, uh, all in Spanish. Uh, So we've been prepping for that. Aha. So say a little bit more about the district that you're hoping to represent. You're challenging Senator Jose Peralta in the Democratic primary. How do you describe the district to either people who have some familiarity with it or people who don't? And what are the biggest problems facing it? Sure. So uh, State Senate District 13 encompasses all of Jackson Heights, all of East Elmhurst, all of Corona, parts of Astoria, Woodside, and Elmhurst. We are the most diverse district in the country. We speak more than 160 languages. We have the second largest LGBTQ community in New York. Um, I've now begun to hear that we have the largest transgender community in New York. Huge South Asian enclave. Uh, large Hispanic population that is different from others across the city because we are uh, mainly South American. Um, And uh, because of that diversity, we are at the crux of so many of the different crises that uh, Americans are facing across the country um, and certainly here across the state. And that, of course, includes uh, the affordable housing crisis. The rents are very high and uh, not much is being done at the state Senate level to protect renters. Our schools are, aren't fully funded, meaning that our children don't have the best possible 
schools ready to open in September. Our teachers have to uh, stick their hands into their own pockets in order to buy supplies many times. Um, we're in a public transportation crisis. The 7 train and the rest of the MTA isn't exactly very reliable. And these are all things that can only be fixed in Albany. So talk to us about this this race and your challenge to Senator Peralta. Do you and the senator have substantive distance differences on any of the policy issues you just mentioned, transit, housing, education? Is that what this race is about? So what, when it comes to talking specifically about rent, there is a clear difference. And that is that I support getting rid of major capital improvement fees, uh, which is the plague here in our district. So many renters, but especially those living in Left Rack City, um, are suffering tremendous charges on their rent as a result of major capital improvements done by their by their landlord to, uh, to their building. And I don't believe that tenants should have to pay for fixes that are being made the building, which ultimately results in continued profit for the landlord, especially big landlords like the Left Rack organization, which has given my opponent uh, around $37,000 in political contributions. I don't take money from real estate because I'm seeking to represent tenants. Um, And so he says that he believes that MCI should be capped, meaning that renters shouldn't have to pay for these fees in perpetuity, but rather only until, uh, you know, the, uh, the improvement charges are covered. Um, but I say that when renters uh, end up having to move out, um, you know, they don't get to, to take those new blocks and, uh, uh, and bricks in the facade with them. Um, it's just not fair. So one thing that strikes me as curious with so many Democrats across the city, state, country, concerned about Donald Trump's presidency, Republican control of Congress, and even here in New York, uh, Republican control of the New York State Senate, is that we have quite a few Democratic primaries being waged, including your own. Can you explain a little bit why you're devoting your energy, the energy of your supporters, your fundraising, and you're forcing, of course, your opponent to dedicate his time, his energy, his focus, his fundraising for a primary, as opposed to sort of harnessing that energy to try to unseat a Republican? I'm running for office because Albany's broken and the Queens I love isn't being represented. And the reason for both of those things is the same. Uh, For a very long time, we have had a state Senate that is controlled by Republicans because there was a group of rogue Democrats, people who we elected as Democrats, um, who deflected from the uh, Democratic caucus and decided that they would empower a Republican majority. And with them, they've been able to block serious reforms, serious uh, progressive uh, legislation that could be uh, helping New York lead the country into the right direction. Um, We just got uh, news today that California passed, uh, uh, put an end to cash bail. Um, Here in New York, we're very behind on that. Um, because we know that the leader of the Senate, because he's a Republican, won't, won't be able to do that. Um, so, so this group of Democrats called the Independent Democratic Conference, or the IDC for short, um, has uh, also helped block things like the DREAM Act, which um, 
my sponsor, my uh, my opponent uh, sponsors in the state senate, and actually claims that being able to pass it is a major reason why he joined the IBC. Um, why you would think Republicans would help you pass um, uh, a measure to help um, our undocumented New Yorkers or undocumented youth is beyond me. Um, but at some point, you know, we have to say that having access to things like office uh, office uh, perks, um, you know, uh, um, more uh, access to discretionary funding, which end up being mere band-aids uh, to real uh, issues that can only be resolved by passing laws, is a major problem. And that's what this race is about. That's what, you know, uh, there are eight uh, challengers to these former IDC members. Um, I say former because they came back to the Democratic fold a few months ago, but nobody should believe them. They only came back because there were elections looming. They did so after the budget session was over. They voted for Republican budgets, and the damage is already done. We can't continue to operate like this. Albany has been a swamp for too long. People go to Albany for 20, 30, 40 years to sit on their laurels because they don't have a sense of urgency. And I think on paper, my opponent and I are very different just in who we are and in the experiences that we've had, um, you know, as New Yorkers. Um, you know, he, he likes to say that, that I don't have any experience passing legislation. Well, of course, because I've never been a legislator, but I know very well what it's like not to be able to uh, make rent. Uh, I know what it's like to have my kids go to a, uh, a school that's owed nearly $2 million. I know what it's like to get stuck on the train because I don't drive like he does. Um, and that's what we need. We need to keep sending people into government who have a vested interest in fixing it. We can't keep electing people for whom the system uh, has worked. Um, we need real workers make bringing real change to our state. You mentioned that the IDC is now the former IDC because they reunify with the mainstream Democrats in April. And and IDC members or former IDC members actually point to that and say, you know, that, that reunification occurred and now part of the mainstream, and yet Republicans still control the state Senate. Um, the budget process went through this spring without action on a lot of major issues, including around criminal justice, bail, discovery, many other priorities of the progressive uh, side of the Democratic Party. And the IDC veterans will say, look, this this illustrates that we were not the cause of the problem, that the math is the Democrats, or sh- should say the Republicans, control the state Senate because Brooklyn Senator Simca Felder caucuses with them. He's not an IDC member. Um, that blaming them for the lack of action on these policy priorities ignores the, the reality of the math in Albany. What do you say to that argument? Well, that, you know, we, uh, the state Senate gets to choose its leadership every January. So, of course, the Republicans still have the majority, um, you know, and and ultimately what the aim of the game is in this election season is not only to elect real, true Democrats, um, on Thursday, September 13th, but also to, for us to turn around as New Yorkers right after the primary and say we're going to go into districts that uh, that voted for Hillary Clinton for president but are currently represented by Republican state senators and push to make sure that there are Democrats there too. Because remember that that's something the IDC never ever did which was to make sure that they were electing more Democrats to have a wider majority. And that's because they were in a power-sharing agreement with the Republicans. So we're on the line. And that's indefensible. 
We're on the line with Jessica Ramos, who is a candidate for state senate in Queens. If you want to ask her a question, please call 347-335-0818. That's 347-335-0818. And so, Ms. Ramos, um, you've touched on the housing issues. You mentioned, obviously, one policy that you want to see passed that you say is a differentiation with Senator Peralta. Uh, let's move on to the transit crisis. Is what's your sort of, uh, you know, campaign pitch in terms of what you say to voters? If I'm in the state senate, here's what I'm going to push for on the MTA on transit. I would love to see the MTA be an actual state agency. I don't believe that uh, authorities, right, the A in MTA. Um, allow for the level of oversight that we need to see um, to fix the problems that we're experiencing. Look, as it is, you know, there there aren't any real oversight hearings um, at state senate committees. Um, authorities don't exactly lend, them, lend themselves to a level of accountability and transparency that we need in order to understand that the MTA is really, um, you know, uh, funded, in the right way, right, that there are revenue streams that are stable, which is why I support congestion pricing and I support the millionaire's tax. But, you know, also to make sure that we, um, you know, that we are, we're giving writers a say and that we are, uh, that the state finally steps up and says, yes, we, we, we do control the MTA. It's up to us to make sure that, um, that all the trains are running, that we're spending uh, money the right way, that contracting per, uh, practices, right, that, per, that the procurement process is one um, that exhibits best practices. Um, I, I can't wait to dig in. I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and dig in. So we have a call on the line. Hello, you're on Max and Murphy. Uh, go ahead, tell us your name and, and ask a question. Hi, this is uh, Mark from Corona. Uh, so my question for Ms. Ramos is, why is, she, why is she lying to us? You know, as a resident, I was at the meeting where she spoke out against the Target development. And recently I read that she took money from, develop, from that Target developer. So I just want to know why she took that money from them, especially okay. from someone that wants to hurt our community so much. Let's let uh, Ms. Ramos address the question. Yes, we discovered two checks, each for $7,000, from two different LLCs. We do not take money from LLCs, which is why we disgorged the funds as soon as we discovered them. So we made sure that before uh, we filed um, for, uh, I guess, financial disclosure, um, we were getting rid of the money because uh, in our campaign we don't take real estate funds. So we took those $14,000 and made the decision to donate them to an organization that is working to unite uh, parents and children that have been separated at the border. I don't know what my opponent does with all of his real estate money, though. Uh, Ms. Ramos, um, on your website, you uh, lay out your platform and you talk about small businesses. And that's such a concern for people all around the city who are seeing uh, businesses shutting down and, and closing up and you know losing some of their neighborhood character as a result. What do you think the state and specifically the state Senate can do to help New York City small businesses? So I think that... Um Overall, the work economy is changing, right? So obviously I, I can speak best about my district um, where we see that 
the, a majority of the small businesses that are able to thrive are, are largely entertainment businesses like restaurants. Um, and we've seen that uh, many times uh, at the community board level, uh, they're denied their liquor license or, or their liquor license renewal because complaints have been made against them. I'd actually like to introduce legislation to make sure that unfounded complaints are taking are taken off of small businesses' records so they have an easier time uh, staying afloat and, and staying in business because we do know that having a, whether it's a beer and wine license or a full liquor license, depending on, on what's appropriate for that particular business and area, that we make sure that we are allowing them access to all of the tools uh, that they need to thrive. But we found, because we found that oftentimes, you know, people call in complaints um, and the appropriate agency, uh, you know, inspects the issue. Um, and it turns out that there's actually nothing wrong. Um, and what we need is to figure out how to keep uh, more businesses afloat. But at the same time, it's why, you know, I would love to see uh, different programs um, that are able to help uh, business in- businesses incubate um, and uh, help them, help guide them down a path to growth. Um, but we can't do that when uh, developers like Target come in. We can't do that when a Disney store comes in, which is something that my opponent called for in the New York Times many years ago. Um, that is certainly not the right way um, to help more people uh, and, 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 and sort of encourage the entrepreneurial spirit of our immigrant community. We're going to take another call for Jessica Ramos, state Senate candidate, but just real quickly on that subject. Obviously, one of the biggest problems plaguing small businesses is rent overhead. Is is there anything on your radar that you would try to do to help ease those burdens or, or help small businesses figure out a way to, uh, you know, that's obviously tied to, you know, housing costs as well or always rising real estate costs are rising for commercial tenants as well. Is there anything on your radar that would help uh, businesses afford the rent better? Yeah, I, I would be very supportive of measures uh, that uh, that would make commercial rent uh, stabilization a reality. Um, we, we can't we just we can't let our economic corridors or co- co- commercial corridors um, you know become uh, strip malls filled with chains. Um, nobody it's not only about of course losing the character of our of our neighborhood um, but also it's not very good for the economy. We, we want more people to open small businesses. We want to encourage that competition. Okay. And so we're going to bring another caller on the line for Jessica Ramos. Hi, who's this and what's your question? Hey, this is um, Pacho from Corona. And I recently saw that you worked for Hiram Mansrat and was curious, why was that left off your bio on your website? I just checked recently. Okay, Ms. Uh, Ramos? Sure. Yes. So I worked in the New York City Council when Hiram Montrat was a city council member, and I worked there from 2006 to 2008, so uh, 10 to 12 years ago. Um, what I am running on is my record of public service and how long I've been serving my community, not only at the city council level, not only uh, you know the near decade that I spent in unions, not only the years that I spent on the community board and on the boards of many community organizations, aside from my tenure at City Hall, um, that that is what I'm running on, my record, and no one else's. 
We only have a few minutes left. Uh, I'm curious. I, I think you've received several endorsements for your campaign, including from The New York Times this morning and also from Mayor de Blasio. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, many New Yorkers have uh, strong feelings about the mayor in one direction or the other. Some have mixed feelings. How do you evaluate the mayor's performance? How do I, I'm sorry, how do I evaluate the mayor's performance? That's right. Yes. And we should so mention I, that you worked for, yeah, you worked for the mayor. I, maybe you were about to say that. Go ahead. <laughs> I, yeah, I, so I did. Sorry. Yes. Um, and, and for some context, so first I was hired to be communications advisor to Deputy Mayor Richard Beery at the time. Uh, he was the deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives. I worked on, uh, you know, helping that team make pre-K universal. Um, I helped the team roll out Thrive NYC, which is the city's mental health roadmap, um, something that we desperately need at the state level and that the city has really, really led on. Um, and then I was uh, promoted uh, eight months later to be the city's first director of Latino media, kind of a misnomer because it was really all community and ethnic media. My job was largely to make sure that uh, New Yorkers whose main language isn't English understood exactly what it was that the city had to offer them in terms of uh, initiatives and resources and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, I... I would say that I am very proud to have the mayor's endorsement. I don't agree with the mayor on everything, but on the other hand, I don't agree with anybody, not even with my husband, <laughs> on absolutely everything. Um, and I'm I'm happy to have his endorsement because I think that campaigns are largely one big, long job interview, right? I want my neighbors to hire me as their representative to Albany. Um, and you know, the people who I've worked for um, could probably... Uh, best speak to uh, my work ethic and uh, my, my capacity and my capability uh, to be able to represent my neighbors well. So we are running out of time, but we have one more call on the line. Uh, go ahead with your, your name and your question for Ms. Ramos. Hi, Ms. Ramos. This is Isael from LeftRAC. Uh, as a LeftRAC resident, I'd like to know why you think the Tennis Association doesn't meet at all. Why, does the tennis Why doesn't the Tenants Association sorry? meet? <laughs> no, I, I do think that it meets. I, I've actually been to a couple of the meetings. Um, I think that largely when tenant associations receive some funding from their landlord, um, it can compromise uh, some of their work. I think that given just how big, right, how big Left Rack City is, I think it's about 5,000 families and you live there. I don't, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you know, there is a lot of organizing to do um, at the grassroots level and making sure that there is a larger majority at tenant association meetings. And I think because of that, it's why we've seen in Left Rack City that there isn't just a tenants association. There's a couple of uh, different groups. Uh, where tenants meet, um, just, you know, depending, I guess, with what their philosophy is of, uh, of how to best fight, uh, you know, MCIs and things of that sort of preferential rent, which is something else that is very prevalent in Left Rock City. Okay, so we have been talking with Jessica Ramos, a state Senate candidate in Queens, looking in the Democratic primary on September 13th to unseat State Senator Jose Peralta, who will be our next guest in a couple minutes. Ms. Ramos, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, good luck the rest of the way on the campaign trail. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope to talk to you guys again soon. Thanks a thanks lot. Thanks for all the questions. Bye.
So you're on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio with Max and Murphy. We are continuing our preview of the state primaries on September 13th and a variety of the races in state Senate and otherwise, including the races involving the former members of the Independent Democratic Conference. And we just heard from one challenger Jessica Ramos, Jared, uh, what do you think about the case that she made? Uh, obviously, very similar to the cases we've heard from both on the show and elsewhere. Other challenges to IDC candidates or former IDC candidates, I should say, uh, about their perception of what were missed opportunities, specific policy issues where they hope for progress that did not occur. It was interesting to have the MCI issue picked out as a specific difference between her and Senator Peralta. We'll ask him about that when he comes in a second. MCIs, for those who who don't have rent-stabilized units, are when a landlord makes a major capital improvement, um, they can apply the cost of that to a rent increase. And um, there's always been issues about whether uh, the expense is verified, whether tenants actually benefit from it, and how long that additional increment can be um, added to rent bills before it amortizes. It's long been an issue. There's been some reforms on it, press for more. And it's one of many issues around rent stabilization, including vacancy bonus, vacancy decontrol, preferential rent, individual apartment improvements that are on the table every time the state Senate and state assembly take up rent control or rent stabilization, I should say, and they are mentioned a lot in this in this campaign year. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that because it connects to a whole slew of rent laws that will be up next year. And this is maybe the number one issue that a lot of state Senate candidates are talking about in terms of flipping the state Senate to Democrats and the impact that it could have if there's all Democratic control of the state legislature and, of course, would need the governor uh, as well. I thought it was very interesting that she talked about making the MTA a state agency as opposed to an authority. That was fascinating to me. Uh, you know, she backed the notion of some commercial rent stabilization, which, is, of course, is, you know, kind of an easy thing for a candidate to say. The mechanisms for actually doing that are often tough to come by. There's been a bill in the city council for a very long time that seeks to do some version of commercial rent control um, that hasn't gone anywhere. It's had some tweaks. There's some talk about figuring out a way to pass a version of it that really has to do with leases. Um, so, you know, she has some very interesting planks in her in her platform there. And of course, she's got this, you know, the anti-IDC argument that, that all the challengers are making. Now we can hear from the man being challenged. We have Senator Jose Peralta on the line. Sir, welcome to WBAI. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So um, you're an incumbent. You're seeking another term. Give us your, you know, your campaign pitch, your street corner elevator subway platform pitch. Uh, why do you deserve another term in the state Senate? Well, you know, this race comes down to several issues and several points. One, first and foremost, is who has a track record, a proven track record in delivering results, right, in terms of the best paid family leave in the country, in terms of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, in terms of creating a $15 million legal defense fund to protect immigrants from being deported, uh, bringing resources in terms of funding towards local schools, over $36 million into our local schools, creating 12 new schools with 7,500 new seats, um, investing hundreds of millions of dollars into our local hospitals. It's about results. It's about making sure that whoever represents you brings results. Two, it's also about someone who has been rolling up his sleeves year after 
after year after year and talking about many of these progressive issues that have just recently become popular. Um, win, lose, or draw, I was the person who was out there being very vocal. You don't have to be an elected official to be an advocate, to, to voice your concerns. You can be involved in many different organizations and be out there and talk to legislators and try to convince them so that they can not only co-sponsor legislation, but also um, push for legislation. Um, and as a legislator, I've been doing that. Um, and three, someone who has the relationships um, that are needed because right now the state has really become the front lines in terms of pushing back against this federal administration with this president. So you need someone who has existing relationships not only in the state senate but also in the assembly, which I served for eight years and has and have those long-term relationships. And of course, with the governor right now, um, it, it looks like the governor's way ahead in terms of the polling. And 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 if if and when he gets reelected, you're going to need someone who has a relationship with the governor um, to move um, issues forward so that you can bring resources to the community. So that's what this race is really about, and that's what I bring to the table as opposed to my opponent. I, I've been a true advocate. I've been someone who had a, a, a proven track record time year after year, and you know, I, I, and I know that uh, my constituents and, and the voters will see through that because when I knock on people's doors, when I see them outside in the streets, that's what they tell me. They say, thank you so much for being active, for being visible, for bringing results to the community. So you're listening to WBAI's Max and Murphy on 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. We're on with Senator Jose Peralta. And, sir, when you speak about uh, Donald Trump's effects on the city, obviously immigration is a major issue that comes up, a very emotional issue. And I know that you are personally invested in the DREAM Act. That is something that perhaps you could talk just for, for listeners who've heard it so often they've forgotten what it was, explain what it is, and then talk also about it, if it's such a, a huge priority for you. In joining the Independent Democratic Conference, did you expect to get more action on that? Are you disappointed that it didn't occur? And and given that it's an alliance with Republicans, did you have a right to be disappointed? Well, look, the DREAM Act is about giving those children who were brought to this country by no choice of their own the opportunity to uh, excel and go beyond the high school level of education. So those individuals will receive tuition assistance through the state, um, and that's what this bill does. And it's something that I've been working on for many, many years in terms of pushing it. But the answer to that is that it's about the math. Um, unfortunately, back in 2014, and this can be easily looked up, uh, back in 2014, when I was with the mainline Democrats, I brought it up to the floor, and it failed by two votes. And who were those two um, members? Two Democrats. Um, and that's why, to this day, we don't have the DREAM Act. Um, and look, it's been something that I've been pushing, and uh, the fact that I was part of the IDC, where I was part of a coalition, and I was able to have a seat at the table, allowed me to bring it up and, and have um, those discussions. And Look, I wish we could have done it, um, but what we did was that we brought, we were able to pass $15 million legal defense fund, because really, you can't have a dream without dreamers. And right now, what we've been seeing over the last few years, well, last year and a half, has really been this president on the verge of trying to deport any immigrant that he can get his hands on. So we needed to protect immigrants, and because we couldn't 
get the DREAM Act, and we've been pushing to get the DREAM Act, um, we were able to get $15 million over the last year and a half to protect immigrants, right, to make sure that the DREAMers stayed here. And then the next phase was to make sure that the DREAM Act occurred. Now, that's why, that's one of the reasons that uh, many of the, uh, the uh, um, all levels of government, whether it's congressional, the, the, the governor, the, the Senate, and the Assembly, and many labor unions got together and said, look, we need to pass progressive issues that were left off the table, and the only way we're going to be able to do that, to push back against this federal administration, is to come together as one and be united. So once we're united as one, um, we're going to be able to do that once we get back to the majority. Now, look, we're going to have a very slim majority. I'm talking about 32, maybe 33. But what I've been doing to prepare for that is that not every Democratic senator was on the DREAM Act bill as a co-sponsor. I had to talk to my colleagues and get them. There was really only 17, and, and I, I pushed it to uh, 27, uh, which still means that there are some members that are still kind of worried about the DREAM Act, but I've had private conversations with them where they've assured me that once we get back into the majority, they will vote for the bill. So right now, there's 31 confirmed people that are senators that are willing to vote for the bill. We just have to pick up one more so we can actually pass it. But again, it's those relationships that were able to let me get to that point uh, that allowed me to get to the 31, which pre before that, it was at 17. Um, and why was it at 17? Because Let's, let's be honest. Uh, when you talk about the DREAM Act outside of New York City, it polls terribly. And people still have in their minds what happened to the four Republicans uh, when they voted for marriage equality. Yes, it was the right thing to do. It was a moral thing to do. But yet all four of them lost. So people have that in their minds when they talk about something that, po that polls poorly in their district. And they may not be against the DREAM Act, but many of the constituents may be against it, and they have to represent their constituents. So, yeah, the DREAM Act is a priority, and, and I'm looking forward to passing it come uh, January 2019, because I have the commitment. And prior so, to that, now we have $15 million to protect immigrants from being deported. By the way, so you, less restrictive than anything that the city passed. So thank you for the for the detailed explanation on the Dream Act and and you know your perspective on your advocacy there and and why it hasn't passed and and your uh, prospects for moving it forward. Let's talk. Let's transition that to a similar discussion on the MTA on transit. Obviously, a major concern of so many New York City residents and including many in your district, of course, in Queens. Can you tell your constituents and other interested parties here who might be listening what you specifically have done? as this MTA crisis we're now in has unfolded, what have you specifically done to prevent us from getting to this moment? What's your MTA transit subway system advocacy and legislative work look like? Well, you know, again, you, you don't have to be a legislator to advocate to be an advocate, but I happen to be a legislator. And what I've been doing is I've been vocal, not only on what's been happening with the MTA in terms of the delays, um, and that's why we were able to um, pass um, $830 million with combined with the city um, so that we can fix the signals um, in the last budget cycle. And that's why we were able to pass the rider relief plan to, um, that will um, help maintain uh, through some of the uh, tax fees that are going to be uh, attached to the Uber and the Lyfts. Um, but we were able to pass that funding so that we can start fixing the signal situation. Because if you don't fix the signal situation, you're always going to run late and you're always going not going to be on time. Hearing you, that, hearing you on all that, though, you know, this, that's obviously this is similar criticisms that the governor has heard and, and other others is that that's all once we've gotten to a really terrible place with service and, and you know, uh, reliability. 
is it just a matter of fact that most people just really didn't see this coming or there wasn't just the political focus on it? I mean, how did how did we get to this point? Was there anything, you know, that you saw coming that you tried to do to prevent uh, the current situation? Yeah, in fact, I mean, back in the day, if you remember, there, were, there was um, the talk about how the MTA had two separate um, set of books. Um, and I was involved when, when um, back when that was, was uh, occurring, I was involved in terms of calling them out on it and, and having, I was part of public hearings, and I was part of saying we need to do better in terms of getting sure, making sure that there are one set of books and, and we invest. Um, and then there was also legislation that took away prior to, um, I believe it was 2008 or 2007. Prior to that, the MTA was a complete independent uh, entity. Um, and uh, uh, Assemblyman Brodsky at the time introduced legislation that, that gave the state legislature much more oversight uh, over, over the entity. Now, we still need more, um, and that's why this has, been, this has gotten to what, where it's gotten. But remember, the, the, the system is over 100 years old, and unless you completely shut it down, um, which no one wants because everyone needs to get to work and get to, to um, different places because it is the arteries that connect New York City. But you're going to have to shut it down piece by piece by piece. And you, we already see the effects of what happens when we shut down a big chunk of it, which is what's occurring with the L train. Um, so I, I think that once you get money for funding and when you get advocates who are pushing, in fact, let me tell you that I used to be, I was in the top three um, of, of uh, legislators that made the list that the MTA didn't want to talk to because it was week after week after week that I would criticize them for being delayed and not investing um, in the system. And we as legislators, I as a legislator, would push to invest in the system. Um, and year after year after year, it was never enough. So it was someone like me who was very vocal, um, not just woke up last year and decided to tweet about something on the train. Um, I have been very vocal year after year after year, and you can, uh, anyone can actually look up the records. Uh, if, you, if you look up various uh, uh, press statements and, and, and press conferences I've had against the MTA over the years, um, it's all in the records. Uh, we have on the line a uh, caller for uh, Senator Peralta. We're going to get to it in a second. If you want to call in, it's 347-335-0818. Before we go to that call, um, I just wanted to ask about a, another kind of transit-related issue or transportation-related issue, and that's the speed cameras debate that we've had over the past several weeks. Uh, I, I know you want to talk about the underlying issue there, but I have a kind of curious separations of powers question about that, which is, as a state senator, I'm sure you think it's a good thing that by executive order, Andrew Cuomo has resolved this problem that resulted from the Senate not taking action. But down the road, is it a good thing for the governor to be able to do by fiat what the legislature uh, did not do, exercising its constitutional powers through the normal process of considering a bill and voting on it? No, no, I actually uh, happen. I, I, I don't think it, I think it's a good thing that it was it was an emergency situation where the governor needed to act. Um, so I think it was a good thing that he acted because we're so close to the schools, uh, the New York City schools opening up um, and it's going to affect 1.1 million school children. But 
I don't believe that that's the solution. I think this is just a band-aid. We need to pass legislation, and in fact, we need to pass my bill. It's my the speed camera legislation that's up in Albany that's being debated. It's my bill, um, where it not only extends but expands um, the speed cameras. Now, look, we were able initially to introduce legislation to make it uh, to put speed cameras in front of every school zone, but it was it was negotiated to a point where. It, we were going to increase it by 150 with over the next three years. And when we got to a point where we were going to increase it by 150 on top of the 140 that currently exists, then we felt that it was going to be introduced on the, onto the floor and it, it was going to, a vote was going to be taken. Now, that's why I decided to not only get Democrats to, to co-sponsor the bill, but I also got Republicans to co-sponsor the bill. So we ended up having 35 co-sponsors, a bipartisan measure, and still it was held up because, unfortunately, as, as everyone knows on this show, um, the number 32 matters to, to, to anyone who's in the majority, and Simca Felder happens to be number 32 for the Republicans. So they bent over backwards to protect him and whatever issue he was trying to hold it for, but so that he is happy so that they can maintain their majority. So let's go to the caller we have. You are on WBAI. Tell us your name and ask your question to the senator. Hi, my name's Elizabeth. I'm a voter in the district. Um, I'm just curious, um, Mr. Pralsa, why you took $37,000 from real estate developers but, a, but it, you're criticizing the other candidate who has not taken that kind of money from private real estate developers. Um, as a voter, I mean, you know, real estate is something that I'm extremely concerned about. So I, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that. Thanks for your question. Go ahead. Well, Sam. yes, uh, I, I appreciate the, the question. And just like um, I've taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from labor unions that represent um, many of my constituents, um, when you talk about um, uh, hospital workers and transit workers and and um, uh, laborers, um, y- you are always you are always going to get money from different organizations, whether it's labor, whether it's real estate, whether it's um, uh, different interest groups. They're going to give you money. Now, the money is not what. Um, what controls your decision? The money is not what makes you decide how to how to go about your business. It shouldn't make you decide how to go about your business, and that's not um, what dictates anything in terms of my politics. What does dictate in terms of my politics is the fact that there is there is a constituency out there that allows me and supports me um, on various issues. So, for example, when the Left Rack Tenant Association has endorsed me, they are the ones that tell me. Senator, we know that you are with us. We know that you've protected us, not only when it came to the voting polls that were moved from left rack so that, so that they can be disenfranchised and bringing it back, but also when it came to issues of MCI, where I have provided attorneys, where I've had um, um, town hall meetings at the, at the, um, at the uh, um, left rack um, locations itself, and I've brought DHCR, and I've mobilized tenants in terms of how to fight back and push back on the MCI issue. So, yeah, I've gotten involved on all these matters, but look, the bottom line is that the, the fact that I've received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the working men and women of, from, the, from the city and the state of New York, I think that's significant, and, and those are the people that I truly represent. 
Okay, so uh, Senator, tell us a little bit more about uh, housing, uh, rent regulations, you know, what the plans are. That's a lot of the discussion your opponent brought up as a top priority. It's a lot of the discussion that many Democratic candidates for state Senate are running on. What does the landscape look there? What specific policies on rent do you want to see uh, passed next year? Well, yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question because, you know, my opponent's tends to say that um, I haven't been vocal on, on policy and issues that matter to rent reform, and, and that's completely false because I'm now not only a co-sponsor on bills that end preferential rent, that ban eviction bonuses, that repeal vacancy decontrol, that make sure that we uh, push back on the improvements of MCIs and, and eliminate landlords from increasing rents during major, major capital improvements. Not only have I been a co-sponsor of, of these bills, um, but I've actually done the legwork in getting many of my um, Democratic conference members to become co-sponsors as well. When I first started with some of these bills, really, there were about 15 Democratic members that weren't on the bill. And if you currently look it up, there's still a handful of Democratic members that are not on these bills. So I ended up pushing and working and negotiating with some of my colleagues to get on these bills. So one of my first um, order of business once uh, January comes around is, is to make sure that Everyone comes on board because, you know, the magic number is 32. And right now we have, for example, on preferential rent, there is one, two, three, four, five. There's about eight. Um, there's about seven Democrat, Democratic senators that are not on the bill, including the leader herself. Um, on, when you talk about eviction bonus, there's, there's about seven, eight that are not on the bill, including the leader herself. Right? So there are the people, there are some of my colleagues that I need to sort of work on to bring over because that is a necessity. It is a necessity to help people who are suffering because the rent is too high. And, and not to make this into a slogan, but it is. And, and, and we're going to have to ask uh, Senator Stuart Cousins about some of, those, some of those bills that you mentioned she's not signed on to when we, when we talk to her next. Anyway, we're going to go to another caller for Senator Peralta. You're on WBAI. Who's this and what's your question? Oh, hi. Yes, this is Jan from the East Village. And my question is, Senator Peralta, uh, have you signed on to the New York Health Bill? which is the bill that would set up a single-payer system for health care in New York. Yes, uh, if you're talking about the Gustavo Rivera bill, I have been a co-sponsor of, of the bill, and I've been very supportive. I've been talking to um, uh, Senator Rivera for a while, um, and I've been talking to my colleagues, because I think single-payer is very much needed, um, and that's something along with um, codifying Roe v. Wade and, and, and other health care measures that I believe that I'm going to continue to push and hopefully, uh, once we get into the majority, um, make a reality. I have a very few minutes left. I wanted to ask Senator uh, this morning's New York Times included uh, the editorial page lodging an endorsement in this race and choosing to endorse uh, Ms. Ramos instead of you. What's your reaction to that? Well, look, uh, endorsements are great uh, when it comes to um, receiving them. But again, it, the I, and I have plenty of them. Um, I have many from various labor unions and elected officials and, um, and not-for-profit and, and um, uh, advocate groups and civic groups, right? I have, I have many, but the issue here really is the endorsement that really matters is 
your constituents, your constituents that come out and see you day after day after day and see you um, in the trenches working hard, right? So an Assemblyman Jeff Arbery who endorses me, that's great. That's a great endorsement. But, you know, it's his constituents that um, are, are more relevant than it comes to that. When it comes to uh, the Queensborough president, Melinda Katz, that's a great endorsement, right? But again, it's about the constituents. When the Queens Democratic Party endorses me, that's great, right? But when you get organizations like the Frederick Douglass Democratic Club, like um, the Wood Heights Democratic Club, like the Pan American Democratic Club, like the Democratic Association of 21st Century Democratic Club, all those matter because those are the people that go in and sit on a monthly basis or on a biweekly basis to discuss the issues that matter in the community, and that's what matters. And so look, speaking of speaking of constituents, we have about uh, forty seconds left. Let's try yeah. to get one more call in. Hi, you're on WBAI. Who are you, and what's your very quick question for Senator Peralta? Hi, my name is Anna, and I was wondering. You know, Peralta says he works for the constituents, but he took so much money from Lafrac in 2017. He took twenty thousand dollars from him. And he won't meet with our real rent reform groups, and we're the constituents. And then Lafrac raised three MCI raises in Lafrac, and he doesn't meet with the real rent reform groups. And those are his Good constituents. Good question. Good question, Senator. Your quick reaction to that? Yeah, no, I don't know what real rent reform group um, she's referring to, but I've met with every reform group that has been that asked me to meet with them. In fact, I've been participating with various groups like Woodside on the Move and others that that have been talking about all these rent reform issues for a long, long time. In fact, we're we're working together to to outline new legislation to push back on some of the rent reform that needs to happen. And so I don't really understand or know which rent reform group they're referring to because every time any rent reform or advocacy group calls my office, I always make it a point to sit down and, and meet with them. So we are going to remind our caller then to give your, your office a call to set up a meeting if that's something that hasn't happened yet. As you said, you're open to, to all those meetings. Senator Jose Peralta, we thank you for joining us on Max and Murphy on WBAI. Good luck the rest of the way on the campaign trail. Thank you very much. Thank you. So another show coming toward a conclusion. We're inching, as you mentioned, or racing toward Election Day. Um, what is Gotham Gazette featuring this week that voters should be looking at? Well, we're really looking at the debates that are happening this week as we started off at the top of the show. Attorney General debate in the Democratic primary, Lieutenant Governor debate in the Democratic primary, and gubernatorial debate in the Democratic primary. So we're looking at those debates. We're recapping them. We're linking to you know the longer video. But if folks want a, a good distilled uh, overview of the debates with a little bit of fact-checking mixed in, which is always helpful. We've got that. How about you at uh, City Limits? We are coming out soon with a series individually on the Attorney General candidates, the Democrats running for Attorney General, looking at their Great. backgrounds and, and choices and tests they have faced. And we'll have also head-to-head policy articles about Cynthia Nixon and Andrew Cuomo on some of the major policy thrusts of the of the race coming out in the next few days. Uh, I think that uh, we should alert viewers to the fact that the lieutenant governor debate will air soon, including possibly on this channel. Uh, and then we have an attorney general debate next week uh, that will be aired on a rival radio station. <laughs> but for voters who really want to educate themselves, that's something to listen to as well. Yeah. And as of tomorrow, we're two weeks from a primary day. So everybody should get their voting plan together, especially since it's on a Thursday. And of course, a reminder that by and large, it's really just Democratic voters. So you have to be registered with the Democratic 
party, check your registration status online, and then you'll get your polling place and all that too, assuming that you are able to vote on Thursday, September 13th. Yes, definitely check that polling place because they do tend to change. That can make for an even more hectic primary or election day morning, as folks know. Ben, thanks so much once again. Thanks to Jessica Ramos and Senator Jose Peralta. You've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. Keep reading and get ready to vote. Labor Day began in the streets when thousands of workers marched for eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. With placards that read, labor creates all wealth, and we must crush the monopolies, least they crush us. This Labor Day, September 3rd, from 6 to 11 p.m., waving our red flag of socialism with our radical speakers critiquing capitalism, they'll remind what we, the workers, accomplished together through activism and organizing. We're Building Bridges, produced by Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Stand with Mumia as he has stood up for us in Philadelphia in front of the Common Pleas Courthouse on 13th and Filbert Street, Thursday, August 30th at 8 a.m. Join the mobilization for Mumia in the streets and courthouse as we demand all files be released. For details about Mumia's wrongful conviction and round-trip transportation, call the Free Mumia Coalition hotline number at 212-330-8029 or write to info at freemumia.com. Remember, when we fight, we win. This is Sansara Taylor, inviting you to a free, open-air film showing under the stars of Baba Bakian's talk, The Trump-Pence Regime Must Go. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. A better world is possible. Thursday, August 30th at 7 p.m. in Marcus Garvey Park Amphitheater at 5th Avenue and 124th Street in Harlem. If you haven't heard Baba Bakian, you haven't heard the hard truth of how we got to a fascist Trump-Pence regime and how only we can end this nightmare. For information, 212-691-3345. Sponsored by Revolution Books, New York's David Goodman, president of the Andrew Goodman Foundation, was in Washington, D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign. The same horrible strain of racism expressed by Jim Crow and the KKK during Freedom Summer is again showing its ugly head in policies coming out of extremist state legislatures and governors. And just like the past, they are creating new laws and practices that restrict access to needs of the poor, like health insurance, and restricting access to the ballot box. They're connected. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court 
gave its blessing to the Ohio's blatant voter suppression scheme. That's why we need a national call for moral revival. I can call all of us, particularly young people across the country, to carry on the legacy of Andrew Goodman, Jane Staney, and Michael Schwerner. We stand together with the young people today and all of us. Forward together. Thank you. David Goodman, and you're tuned to listener-sponsored WBAI New York. I'm Hank Key of the Personal Computer Show. We can be heard each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We feel that we have been a part of your computing experience. We have been offering information that is not readily available on mainstream media. We have been broadcasting each week all things computing. And since we do not have advertisers, we have and will continue to be unrestrained from commenting objectively. We ask you to support the station with a WBAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who signs up to make a recurring monthly donation to WBAI using either a credit or a debit card. Once you've joined, you will receive a WBAI buddy card and WBAI tote bag. The card allows you to participate in the many member benefits, including discounts offered by our BAI buddy partners. You can call 516-620-3602. And tell them you want to become a BAI buddy, and we'll be glad to help you get set up. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News with Paul DiRienzo.